The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange, a podcast about business brought to you by Breaking Views, the opinion and financial arm of Reuters. I'm Dasha Fanasieva, a columnist in London. The pandemic has changed our lives over the past year, and for many office workers, that's meant relocating to their studies and dining tables. Joining us now to explain the impact of these shifts and what might happen next is Nicholas Bloom, William D. Eberly, Professor of Economics at Stanford School of Humanities and Sciences and a Fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Thank you for joining us, Nicholas. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, so I'd just like to start uh, by asking you about your research and who have you found is actually working from home and sort of at what scale uh, during the pandemic and how has it changed? So to give you a rough sense, before the pandemic, we know very accurately from a survey that was done in 2017, 2018, that roughly 15% of people ever worked full days from home. And that accounted for roughly 5% of working days. So most people that work from home before the pandemic, there weren't many of them, they're only 15%, they mostly work from home like a day a week. During the pandemic, uh, roughly half of people now are working from home and they're working from home basically full time. So they've gone from kind of 5% of days to 50% of days, so a massive increase. The interesting thing is what's gonna happen afterwards. And we've been surveying two and a half thousand Americans and a month and I've been talking to I know a couple of hundred firms. I have a firm survey as well. You know, they all point to very much the same thing, which we can you can almost call the Google plan since Google one of the first to announce this, but tons of firms have jumped on the bandwagon since, which is for those workers that can work from home, probably most people listening, it's looking like it will be probably two days a week post-pandemic working from home, three days a week in the office. So a very standard plan is, you know, you come into the office Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Everybody works from home Wednesday, Friday, we all go home, we all work from home. For the other half of the population that can't work from home, they're kind of remaining as they were before the pandemic. They're basically having to come into work every day. And those days that you're all in, you're in the office, it'd be your entire team so that you can, you know, share ideas and whatnot. Yes, exactly. So there's a lot of, you know, conflicting things being traded off here. But the the key messages you hear is people want to come in the office because primarily innovation. They feel it's more creative and innovative to be together. A lot of mentions about company culture and actually a little bit about kind of uh, mental wellness, mental health. And so the aim is everyone comes in on the same days and we organize it in advance. So people with busy home lives and having to organize things with spouses can tell that. So, you know, I spoke to one person that before the pandemic said, you know, it was a nightmare. My manager used to tell me Sunday night, this week we're in like, Monday, Tuesday, you know, Wednesday, I couldn't deal with it. So same days, pre-organized. For larger firms, uh, there's a lot of thought about splitting teams into like red and green teams and they rotate through an A and B week. So maybe A week on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, B week or Wednesday, Friday to make better use of space. But you all come in on the same day for the whole team. You all basically work from home, same day for the whole team. Yeah, because our experience was that just before the pandemic started, we moved to an office that had fewer desks than people working. So we were hot desking um, and everybody was looking for that to be an excuse for working from home more. And they said, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, and then we're, we're obviously forced to do so. But yeah, I guess that is the main the main question for everyone is the degree to which companies are going to want to usher us 
back in. So I guess what from their point of view, what is the rationale for letting us work from home three days a week? So I think the averages probably work from home two days a week. And the rationale primarily is, um, you know, there's a trade off. So in our surveys and you hear it over and over again from firms, people really want to work from home. The typical employee wants to work from home, but they only want to do it a couple of days a week. So it's very easier in the media. I've heard, you know, more or less the same plan presented as completely different things. So early on, Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook said, um, we're going to allow people to work from home post pandemic. He didn't say full time. He just said work from home, which I've talked to Facebook and it's more like two days a week. And it was represented as Facebook forever at home. And it's like, no, that's not right. It's two days a week. On the other extreme is Goldman Sachs, who last week said, uh, you know, we're not keen on working from home. And that was interpreted as everyone's come back in the office. Again, actually, it means everyone can come back in the office three, four days a week, but you can work from home one or two days a week. So the broad view is employees really like to work from home. In our survey, it's worth about 8% of salary to work from home about two days a week. So it's a pretty valuable perk. Why not give it to employees if it doesn't really damage productivity? On the firm side, Actually, we hear that, and from experimental and research data, productivity is actually higher if you let people work from home a couple of days a week because they work more and they can concentrate. So, you know, the average American has about an hour a day of commute. We know from time use data that roughly 50% of that commute, if it's saved, gets spent on work. So if you let people work from home two days a week, they're basically working roughly half an hour a day more. And as much as home is noisy, post-pandemic you know, when the kids are back in school, you know, home is quieter than the office. I could give you endless hilarious anecdotes of horrible things that happen in the office. Like the person that complained about the person at the desk next and clipping their toenails under the desk. I mean, just, you can't imagine. I, I don't want to go there, but firms are happier because their employees are like more productive typically two days a week and employees are happier. So why not? Right. But is there a sort of, uh, you mentioned that different companies present their plans with a different accent, that it sounds like it relates to the sort of culture they want to project rather than actually doing things differently. But is there a science to the three slash two split or are they still kind of just feeling their way and figuring out what works best? There's some variation. So if you look uh, before the pandemic, and it's true now, high tech and financial services, so banking, insurance, accountancy, are much more likely to be working from home, kind of jobs and more office-based jobs, more computer-based. Skilled people, high educated, are more likely to be working from. Honestly, pretty much the people that are listening to this, uh, people who live out in the suburbs are happier to work from home than young people that live in small apartments that want to get out of their apartment. But broadly speaking, most firms are ending up in the same point, whereby post-pandemic, they are going to have people come back to the office, but it's just not going to be five days a week. What's kind of interesting is how it's got spun in one direction or the other, depending on the story, the, you know, the... Uh, Someone in the news say wants to say, and because working from home is not a one zero, it's not full time or none. It's you know, how many days a week, and most for like Google. I mean, my favorite is the Google. Hilariously, they called it the three two two plan. Why they needed to mention the final two Saturday and Sunday <laughs> for most firms, it's kind of I take it as given that's my time. But anyway, they had to be clear that that's your time. But the first three and the second two was basically three days a week in the office, two days a week at home, and that's just a very very standard plan. Right. And and you said that uh, employees are willing to give up sort of 8% of their salary to, to work from home. Do you actually see that being formalised in any sense? I mean, is the next stage that companies actually see it as an opportunity to pay people less? 
Well, you could twist it either way. So I'll tell you what we know um, from the survey, we asked people how valuable is working from home, the option to work from home two days a week. And it could be a negative or a positive number. And there's a range, but the average was about plus 8%. And there's actually some experimental data from before the pandemic, a paper in 2018 in the American Economic Review came up with the same number. So the question is, what do you do with that? My take on it is, look, this is a perk that's free for the company. They're actually more productive at home. So in a competitive environment, you're all fighting for the same employees, the same talent. You know, if there's two companies and I allow you to work from home two days a week and, you know, one of my competitors doesn't, they've got to pay you 8% more to, you know, st to uh, keep the employees there. So who quite keeps the gain? I suspect mostly employees will, to be honest, because if you don't, if you know, given most firms are going to let people work from home a couple of days a week, if you don't, that's fine. But if you don't want to have everyone walking out the door once the recovery, you know, quickens pace, you better make good. It's like off, not offering a healthcare plan. Nobody has to offer a pension or a healthcare plan. If you don't, it's expensive. You better pay people more. Very similar to with working from home post pandemic. But what about if you're hiring a new person and they can actually, okay, so maybe the, the if you're only working two days a week, it doesn't make that much difference. But if you are hiring somebody and you could live with them working remotely, more than that, say almost all of the time, and they can live in a place that's much cheaper than Silicon Valley, for example, which is notoriously expensive. Do you see, do you see that kind of being, a, you know, a point of negotiation? And I mean, sort of extreme outsourcing is that are we going to be living in a world where we're competing with people really far away uh, for, you know, for jobs, because we decide that actually a lot of them can be done remotely, even white collar jobs? Yes. Yeah, so there is a different path here, which is fully remote. And obviously, during the pandemic, you know, roughly half of us are fully remote. Most firms are unkeen on this. I mean, everyone living through this kind of, you know, I don't know about you, but, I, you know, certainly I, I match the survey data. I, you know, I like my colleagues. I don't want to probably be in work five days a week, but I'd like to be in three. There is a share of people, roughly 25 percent, that report that they'd like to be at home five days a week. I don't know how long that will last for. But in terms of firms, yes, there's this whole debate about digital nomads and people being fully remote. For those people, it is true, you can probably get away with paying them a bit less. So in the US, you know, you may work for Facebook in Silicon Valley, but live in Mississippi or Alaska. Another issue, I must have spoken to, I don't know, 100 execs by now, is of course, exactly as you point out, if they can work in Alaska five days a week, why can't they work in Mexico? Why can't they work in Colombia? Why can't they work in India? And at that point, you start to realize that particularly as it's become harder to bring employees from abroad to the US, to the UK, to other countries because of you know immigration and Brexit and other political changes, um, a lot of execs are seasonists. They're saying, look, over the pandemic, we had a, a year of people working fully remote. It seemed to work pretty well. Why don't I just permanently move these teams? I mean, imagine this. Imagine I think, look, they're only 80% as efficient when they're five days remote, but they cost 30% as much to have a team in, you know, in India as it does in the US. Why not do that? And a lot of people are deciding to do this. In fact, I think the pandemic may be for service sector offshoring what uh, China joining the World Trade Organization in the early 2000s was for manufacturing. I can see a massive surge in offshoring of service sector jobs, uh, lower end skills stuff. So I think firms may take a two path approach like People that come in three days a week, you need to be face to face. It's more creative. It's more involved. They're, you know, pretty much as they were before. And then those that are fully remote that are going to come mobile nationally, but also internationally. Mm. Well, I was I was also thinking about, um, say, in the city of London, you know, there's lots of client facing advisory jobs where you have to meet people. 
but there's lots of uh, jobs at funds and things that are kind of quants, you know, processing their data and people who make vast sums of money uh, who could just be based in, uh, you know, low tax jurisdictions. Uh, and you sort of wonder what that means for for London um, if they if they started working. It, it's kind of like this uh, reverse. I, I don't know if you if you could see there being this sort of kind of physical tax avoidance. You know, we, we typically typically people try to just move stuff on paper. But here, you know, could people actually be moving physically to um, to make these gains? Yes, definitely. So just to give you one anecdote. I used to work in McKinsey long ago, and back in 2002, 20 years ago, and I was there as an, a, a consultant, we used to have something called MCKC, McKinsey Knowledge Center, and we would fax at night, our draft slide packs, we'd produce these slides, you'd wake up in the morning, there'd be an email in your inbox, and the, the, the team out in Madras in India would have produced the slides overnight. So that was an offshoring of a production team in 2002. It is so much easier now, and, you know, I know lots of I've spoken to so many financial sectors firms already have offices out in India, in Mexico, some in South Africa. So this is not a new thing. It's just going to dramatically accelerate what was happening before. So I think we're seeing an explosion of this. The other thing on uh, that's tricky for Americans, actually, is the state level tax issue. So another thing that's coming up is I live in California and our top rate of income tax at the state level is 13 percent across the board in Nevada is zero. So, you know, there's a there is already a strong sucking sound for jobs moving over to Nevada. I know people that live in what's called Incline Village. It's right on the border in Lake Tahoe. It's a very nice place and it's full of Californians that are living literally 100 meters from, you know, the state border to avoid tax. That is just going to explode because now if you're only coming in the office two days a week, that's much more feasible. You may well. I mean, look, if you're a techie and you're on three million dollars a year, saving 13 percent is a lot of cash and you may decide to move. So. I think in the US, we're going to find some problems with state and city tax rates varying. And maybe even in Europe, you may find, you know, people commuting across European countries to get around taxes. Definitely. I mean, it's it, the amazing, the sort of the utopia of kind of having this completely different lifestyle and sort of, I don't know, going hiking every day, not having to be in a city sounds sounds quite amazing. But the it must be a massive headache for you know, the planners and the sort of the, the people who deal with city budgets and state budgets. You know, it's hard to imagine what happens if we're not sort of getting our coffees on two out of the five days. You know, that must have an impact, right? Yes, definitely. So we estimated this in the paper. I have a paper called Why Working From Home Will Stick. And we estimated this in the paper. We've been running surveys of two and a half thousand Americans a month for, you know, since back since the pandemic started. We've got a huge sample. And in the long run, cities like New York, San Francisco are going to lose about 10% of sales revenue, 10% of sales tax. I actually spoke to Palo Alto City Council, you know, kind of tech HQ, uh, mm. about a month ago. It's online. It was, you know, their city council meetings are online and they're freely accessible. And they have that issue, drop in sales tax. There's a second issue affecting large cities is uh, high-end hotel taxes. So I'm not sure how much people are aware, but for places like New York, London, San Francisco, they get a lot of their tax revenue from those massive tax rates. <laughs> if you ever stayed in a business hotel, I don't know if you looked on the bill, if you looked at the itemized, but there's a very large wedge that goes to the city. So that's down. Property tax revenues are possibly up. It's a bit of a mix. But yes, they are in trouble. And I think you know, the message is a lot of um, very dense urban cities are going to have to slightly downsize or right size. London's particularly bad because obviously has the double whammy of Brexit. So 
You know, it's like a prize fighter that's been punched twice hard and it's staggering around. I mean, London, you can hear I'm British. I grew up in London, but it will recover. Um, but it's going to downsize and property prices in London, are, you know, central London particularly are down and they're going to remain lower because of it. Yeah, I mean, and the crazy thing looking around now is that you still see lots of cranes in the sky, lots of buildings going up. And it makes you wonder sort of how, how sustainable that is uh, and who's going to work and live in in those buildings because you know i think the population's already fallen close to 10 percent in the last year which is just huge um but we'll see i also just wanted to to come back uh to to this point of workers being more productive um and you you raised um in in some of your research you raised the issue of inequality but in in uh, more than one context. So I was wondering how, um, you know, how workers who aren't in the office as much, whether you have any insight on how their work gets recognized and, and you know, whether they'll, they'll still be benefiting from sort of demonstrating that they're doing really well and getting FaceTime with their manager. Like, you know, will managers appreciate that they're still super productive? Great question. Derek. You know, from talking to execs, there's two topics that come up often raised, which are important to think about for management. So uh, they're slightly different issues. So the first on inequality is about really education. So if you look in during the pandemic, typically graduates, honestly, people probably listening to this have worked from home. It's not been great, but mostly they've kept their jobs and post pandemic, they'll probably get to work from home two days a week. So that's actually quite a valuable perk post pandemic. If you look at non-grads, uh, because of the nature of their job tends to be more physical face to face. They've often had to come in face infection risk loss jobs. And a lot of execs have told me they have real issues with this with lower level, lower paid employees really quite upset that they've basically had a horrible pandemic far worse. You know, post pandemic, they're not getting this perk. And there's no easy answer. I mean, I, you know, I could talk about this for a while, but at least worth recognizing and possibly through the pay system for people that don't get to work from home, maybe making good and say, look, instead we'll give you a, you know, a few percent pay increase to compensate. So that's one issue. The other issue is about post pandemic, what happens if you let people choose? So in the data you see, there's a huge spread in how, how many days a week people wanna work from home. So roughly a quarter of people never wanna work from home ever again. They, you know, they're young, single, they live in apartments. They're like, please, you know, I want to come back to the office. Roughly a quarter at the other extreme, they want to work from home five days a week and the rest are somewhere in between. So you initially think, look, why not let people choose? Why not let some people come in five, others one? The problem is, as I've seen in previous research data, is if you're coming into the office five days a week and other people are working from home for five days a week, the second group's promotion rate is massively lower. And in fact, in a study I did in China 10 years ago, we saw people working from home, their promotion rates almost halved. Now, you add the fact that we know from the survey data who wants to work from home five days a week is not random. It tends to be uh, people with young kids, slightly more likely to be women, slightly more likely to be disabled people, probably people that possibly that are very religious. There's certain groups that are keen on it. If you let employees choose, you have a potential diversity time bomb and kind of lawsuit issue that you could see down the line say, you know, women and young kids chose to be work from home on average four days a week, young men chose to come in the office all the time. Those groups have very different promotion rates. So I'm actually would be very nervous about letting people choose the number of days a week they work from home because of this 
is as much an inequality issue as a diversity issue, and it has to be very carefully managed. And I think it's it's tough. And my broad view and most managers' view is probably increasingly it's maybe not a good idea to have choice in this dimension, at least constrain it pretty heavily, because otherwise there's going to be issues, you know, five, ten years, pretty serious issues. Is there any way to correct for these things that isn't just saying we're going to have the same rule across the board? Possibly, in part. So here's the issue. And I worked, so in CTRIP, I published this paper in the Quarterly Journal of Economics a few years ago. We did a large randomized control trial on a Chinese multinational where we randomized people into home and not. And so I won't bore you the details, but when we, we saw this halving of promotion rates of people that are working from home, when we interviewed them, it turned out there are two reasons driving this. One is fixable, one is hard to fix. So the first was, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and that's reasonably fixable. You think you've got to pay attention to people working from home, you have to evaluate them, you can't just forget about them. The second one was much harder to deal with, which was CTRIP said, you know, the people that are working from home, they're not really quite developing the same social capital and managerial skills as the folks coming in the office. They're not going for lunch. They're not going for coffees. They're a bit less aware of what's going on in the office. Maybe that's why they're slightly more productive, actually, minute by minute. But they're, on the other hand, they're suffering with just not developing these kind of longer run managerial skills. And that's harder to deal with. So, you know, there is no easy solution here. And I, I mean, I, I state it as it is. I just think it's a real risk if you let some groups work from home four or five days a week. If they're in competition for promotion with others that are coming in the office five days a week, it's just not going to end up as a as a fair competition. And I guess if you're already, you know, if there are fewer days that you can be in the office, that's less time that the sort of the higher ups have to, you know, to meet with with people for coffee and stuff. You, like you're, there's greater competition for that time um, yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, it's fine if everyone's on the same day. So right now in the pandemic, we're all working from home, but everyone's working from home. So we're on kind of a level footing. And if people come back in the office three days a week, the problem is when there's same team, you're all going for the same promotion. Some of you in the office five days a week, some in the office one day a week. It's just not a, it's not a fair competition. We know where this heads. And the issue is people that choose to stay at home four or five days a week aren't random. You know, they're a kind of selection of people and that group will end up suffering on promotion. And I guess, you know, most of the research you've just spoken about has been uh, in the US, particularly sort of this coronavirus stuff. Are there cultural differences between uh, different countries and how, do, how does that sort of fit in uh, the global, globalized world? Or do you find that because you have multinationals and are they going to sort of operate in the same way in each country? Is that going to spread the way of working and make it quite globalized? So I... We surveyed 5,000 people in the UK, looks almost identical to the US. I've spoken but not collected data from Australia, looks similar. So there are a bunch of typically developed countries that look very similar. I've discussed with firms and seen data from Singapore, Brazil, Japan, etc. Uh, I remember talking to a multinational with a large presence out in Indonesia. What you basically see is working from home uh, is driven in part by the industry. So financial services, tech, et cetera, works very well. That tends to help develop countries by having space. So it works very well in the US and Singapore. They said, look, a lot of our employees live in these very small apartments. I don't want to work from home. And then the third thing is infrastructure. So I remember in Indonesia, the multinational said, there's no broadband to most of our employees' homes. And even if there was, they don't have computers there. So it tends to be, I've seen data from the World Bank that working from home is very high in Northern Europe, US, lower in Southern Europe. 
it's still there. You go out to countries like Indonesia, it's kind of 10%, but it's not up to the 50% now we're seeing in the US. So it scales down, but it definitely doesn't go away. Super. Well, that gives us a really good rundown of what the world's going to look like after this is this is over. Thanks so much for joining us, Nick. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be on. That's our show for this week. I would like to thank my guest, Nick Bloom, and our producer, Freddie Joyner, in New York. Massive thanks to you, our audience, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, Views Room, on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out every day on breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.